everybody. Hello. Hello. How's everybody doing today? Good. Excellent. Yeah. <laughs> My name is Nina Mamakunian. I am the literature and theater and dance librarian here at Geisel Library. I'd like to welcome you to tonight's event. Um, we are thrilled to be partnering with the new writing series um, to bring wonderful authors um, to read for us and to talk with us. And we are thrilled to have Marcelo Hernandez Castillo here um, reading for us. And I hope you're all thrilled as well. <laughs> um, a couple things um, housekeeping-wise. Uh, in the back of the room, um, you'll see that door and out that door are the restrooms and the water fountain if you need them. Um, if you do need to leave the reading early, um, please use the door that's going to be least disruptive to the reading. Um, I have a couple extra mics up here, and that's because we record these readings for the Archive for New Poetry. Um, if you do have a question after the reading, we will be having mics to pass around, um, so please wait until you get a mic so we can pick up your question for the recording. Um, and before I forget, if everybody could pull out their phones and please silence them so that we are not interrupted. And I believe that is it for me. So I'm going to bring up Professor Kazamali. Um, thanks for coming, everybody. It's um, great to see uh, such a crowded room to listen to Marcelo Hernandez Castillo. It's a special pleasure for me because um, I met Marcelo, I think, for the first time when he was a wee, wee lad of 20-ish, um, something like that. I mean, unbelievable. So to see you know, how far you have come and your work and your devotion um, is an inspiration to me as well. Um, the one thing that I want to add about the new writing series is that, you know, in its founding back in the day, I, you know, I'm, shamefully I don't know the actual year this series was founded, <laughs> um, but it was a series dedicated and still is a series dedicated to innovative and experimental writing across genres. So um, to me, one point that I want to make, especially in light of tonight's reading, but in very general, um, is that the innovative also includes who is permitted to speak at all, and who has access, and who is promoted, and who has what kind of platform. So if you've come to these events in the past, you know that I will always yammer at you a little bit about <laughs> the need to support small press, and the need to support independent literature, and the need to support voices um, that have not historically or to this day um, been given um, true access to audiences, those writers. Um, and and certainly Marcella's now presence, dominant presence in the American literary community bodes well for all of us. So to truly introduce Marcello, I'm going to introduce Carlito Espudo, one of the amazing graduate students in our MFA program here. Cosm, I just noticed we have the same haircut. <laughs> Hello. It is my great pleasure to welcome Marcelo Hernandez Castillo, writer of Dulce Sensontle and his newest book, a memoir called Children of the Land. Marcelo Hernandez Castillo is a poet, essayist, translator, and immigration advocate. Hernandez Castillo was born in Zacatecas, Mexico, and immigrated to the California Central Valley. 
As an AB 540 student, he earned his BA from Sacramento State University and was the first undocumented hi. <laughs> and was the first undocumented student to graduate from the Helen Zell Writers Program at the University of Michigan. He is a founding member of the Undocu Poets Campaign, which successfully eliminated citizenship requirements from all major first poetry book prizes in the country and was recognized yes. and was recognized with the Barnes & Noble Writers for Writers Award. He has helped to establish the Undocu Poet Fellowship, which provides funding to help curb the cost of submissions to journals and contestants and contests for undocumented writers. A graduate from the Canto Mundo Latinx Poetry Fellowship, Marcelo Hernandez Castillo has also received fellowships to attend the Vermont Studio Center and the Squaw Valley Writers Workshop. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Paris Review, and the Academy of American Poets, among others. He currently teaches at the Ashland Low Res MFA program and teaches poetry workshops for incarcerated youth in Northern California. We have the bio stuff done. Mm -hmm. On to the fun stuff. <laughs> Hernandez Castillo's debut, debut book of poetry, Sensontle, was chosen by Brenda Shaughnessy as the winner of the 2017 A. Powellin Jr. Prize published by BOA Editions in 2018. I cannot stress enough how good of a book it is. <laughs> I'm up here specifically because I'm so enamored by the book. It was also the winner of the Great Lakes Colleges Association New Writer Award for Poetry, the 2019 Golden Poppy Award from the Northern California Independent Booksellers Association, and the Bronze in the Forward Indie Best Book of the Year. Sinsonle was also a finalist for the Lamba Literary Awards, the California Book Award, the Publishing Triangle's Tom Gunn Award for Gay Poetry, and the Northern California Book Award. To say this book is a big deal is an understatement. To say that you should buy it is also an understatement. <laughs> In her foreword to Sensantle, Shaughnessy calls the collection, quote, a new vision of love and loss and dispossession and reclamation. To accomplish this vision, Hernandez Castillo evokes the Sensantle, the mockingbird, he who has 400 voices, but also no call of his own. The voices within his collection recount the grief within unjust deaths, the consuming fear and trauma of separation and fissures at the border. Quote, perhaps the butterflies are mute because no one would believe their terrible stories. In one interview, Hernandez Castillo said that his writing is catching up for many years of confession. To live in a queer, brown, undocumented body is to live in secret, in fear, to hide oneself and become invisible. In another poem, he writes, it is possible to only see things that have been given names. Even the mockingbird must first hear a name before they can recreate it. His new memoir, Children of the Land, continues to make up for lost time. In it, Hernandez Castillo sheds a painfully bright light on his and his family's experiences before, during, and after crossing the US-Mexico border. It is a story that refuses to hide anymore, that bears itself like an open rib cage. As I was reading and crying through Children of the Land, two lines from Sensontle echoed in my head. Years from now, there will be a name for what you and I are doing. And you and I want to believe it is art, even if we don't change. Please, well, yeah, please join me in welcoming Marcelo Hernandez Castillo.
Can everybody hear me okay? All right. Um, thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. Uh, that really means a lot to me uh, when to to hear to hear you and have engaged with my book. It, it truly does. Um, set my timer. Okay. So I'm going to be reading from uh, Children of the Land and then um, kind of finishing up with Sensontle, just because they're kind of in conversation with each other. Uh, what I was telling some people um, in other events is that, or how I thought about Children of the Land and why I decided to write prose after dedicating my whole life to poetry and only necess and only really thinking of myself as a poet. Um, being very uh, insular in that way, um, thinking that I couldn't really do anything else. Um, and so uh, there were a lot of things in Zensontle that I wasn't able to say completely, that I had to say in prose, that I had to uh, take over. Uh, I was able to say in prose what I could not say in poetry. And, um, and, it, and I tried, you know, I tried and I tried and I tried. And I admire poets who are able to feel like they, they can say everything they need to in poetry. Um, but for me, it was just failure after failure. And uh, the book just started from that and started from the fact that I couldn't write poetry. I stopped I stopped writing poetry after I had finished uh, Sensontale. It still wasn't, it hadn't been published, but it was still on me. It was like, it was like gum stuck on me. So, um, you know, it's, it was unbearable to write a poem at the time, but it was unbearable to not write at the same time. So I started writing these essays, which later became this book, um, because we were going through a terrible, a difficult time in my family. And this is what I'm going to be reading from today. This section, um, after being in this country for about, you know, 35 years on and off, my mother uh, decided to self-deport back to Mexico. Um, and the reason being is that uh, my father had been deported 12 years before, so they'd been separated for 12 years. And it was kind of a difficult kind of thing to define what the relationship was uh, with his insistence on her return and her refusal uh, for the sake of us, for the sake of her children. Um, but after his second immigration interview was denied and he essentially got told, he was told, you know, indefinitely you will never be able to enter the U.S., uh, she thought it was time to, to return, to retire because she was, she was tired of living a life uh, in fear. You know, and I wanted her something better for her. Um, the only question, I mean, the question that the book asks is, has my father changed in those 10 years? What has solitude done to him? Because it was a very tumultuous uh, household when he was there. So this is when I am, I have moved back to my mother's house to help her start cle clearing her house. Back in her house, 
I brushed my mother's hair, which was soft and thinning. She started dyeing it for the first time. Maybe that's why it felt so light through my fingers. She always loved her gray hairs, said it made her look refined, dignified, but not anymore. We sat on her couch late at night watching a Spanish-dubbed Steven Seagal movie on Telemundo. Her arms were small, and I could feel her sharp bones angled at the softest parts of her. I rubbed oil in her hair and kept brushing as we both laughed at Seagal, those quick action camera angles, and the infamous ponytail whipping back and forth. The explosions in the background, 20 years after the movie has been released, seemed faded and uneventful, as if by now, in our dim rooms version, Telemundo version, they were only pointing at fire and couldn't actually burn, as if they were only saying bang, but were muted. And Seagal knew this. He was indifferent with his emotionless face. Perhaps already aware during filming of the dim and fuzzy filter he would be seen through 20 years later in a dark room where a boy who was hardly a boy anymore was brushing his mother's hair. It was as if he knew that his voice would be replaced by the voice of a man speaking in a heavy Castilian Spanish who had difficulty expressing surprise when a bomb exploded in his O's and ahs, and which sounded more like soft moans. He didn't bother opening his mouth much to speak. She never had many knots in her hair, but I continued to brush. It wasn't defeat that was growing in the air with each week. It was exhaustion. It was easier to brush her hair than to tell her I would miss her. I knew she would never return. Could we be blamed for giving up? There was an abscess growing on her arm from a car accident. It looked like a golf ball on her wrist, and it forced her to become left-handed. I remembered her being mad at me as a teenager and saying, don't make me hit you with my good hand, her left hand. It didn't hurt when she hit me, but I had to pretend that it did. What hurt most was the fact that she hit me, the fact that she couldn't hit me with her right, the fact that she had to adjust her body sideways to hit me with her left, and that I just stood there, unfazed, angry that it couldn't go out with my friends. The fact that it didn't hurt, but I cried nonetheless. She was hit by a drunk driver. Apa was driving and they were T-boned on the passenger side, her side. Apa walked away from the crash unharmed. The hood of the car sliced open Ama's neck. The right side of her body was shattered. Apa said he saw the car coming and just before impact, he swerved left without thinking. I wonder how much time he had to choose which way to turn, his side or Ama's side. It's funny 
how those things happen. How one person can walk away without a scratch while the other is nearly sliced to pieces. If the lights were on in the room, and if I were looking at Amma for the first time, I would notice the remnants of that accident. The scars running down her neck and the ones on her shoulder where small pieces of glass were still tucked just beneath the skin and yet lodged too deep to extract, too large to dissolve into the rest of her. The largest scar ran down the length of her forearm where they opened her and replaced all the bones with metal. The metal would stay there, but the glass would not, at least not all of it. The doctor said the shards would come out by themselves unexpectedly and years later with minimal pain, like a slow bullet traveling out of her, like a bullet in a film with an already outdated actor looking directly into the camera as he recites one offers like, I'm a bad motherfucker. I imagine the glass making its uneventful entrance into the world, two decades later, as if it were alive, squirming the way snakes do when they come out of the show. Maybe it would be a lonely affair. No one there to see it except Amma, who would surely be confused at first, seeing something leave her body. Or... Maybe I would be there to witness this thing that's been part of my mother's body for so long it could be mistaken for bone. I wouldn't know how to hold it if it fell in my hands. I would put it to my ear and listen. I would hold it to the light before giving it back to Amma so that she could know what it was that hurt her every time she lifted her arm to hit me. As the time approached of her departure, um, everything felt like an ending. But we wanted one last of everything. One last birthday. One last Thanksgiving. One last New Year's. Um, you know, it would be the last time that our family... Uh, would be together as we were, as one, uh, looking at the way we did. Um, from, you know, uh, I say from that point on, she would, we would exist mostly in her memory. And yes, some of us could go see her, um, but the, the distance nonetheless creates that, uh, you know, we would go see her maybe once a year. That would have been the case. And I didn't want my child, I didn't have a, ch a child by the time when I was writing this, but I didn't want my child to know their grandparents the way I knew my father growing up through a phone being shoved into my ear by my mom. For those of you who have relatives, um, long distance relatives will know this. I didn't know how we set a date, but eventually we did. February 22nd, 2016. It almost felt good to see a date to that thing which we couldn't name, 
I could see it in my head and prepare myself. I could give it a shape, a substance. I remembered a line of a poem I had written years before. It is possible to only see things that have been given names. When I wrote it, I didn't know how much it would come to mean. I didn't have a container for it. But it finally made sense. It had a name. February 22nd took up space. There was a weight to it, a shadow. Her house was a repository. She kept everything over the years because she didn't know if one day she would need it for immigration, meaning that one day she might need to prove her presence. Prove that she was actually here for those decades. A utility bill, a rent receipt, a check stub, or a painting I made in the second grade. Prove her presence. But none of that was needed anymore. If anything, undocumented people are over-documented. We sat down in her living room with boxes stacked in the middle and went through them paper by paper. It got to the point where we had to begin clearing things out. With each cleaning session, her house got bigger and bigger. It started to look empty as soon as the larger furniture was gone. Soon, there would be no trace that she was ever there except for the smudges on the doors, the walls, and the grease stains on the stove that no amount of rubbing would erase. Seventeen years we had lived in that house, paying our rent month after month, and never once was a mile late. On the day we were to hand over the keys, she sat on the driveway, the spotted sun through the branches speckled over her, while we finished loading the last truck. I did one last walkthrough of the house. Before I closed the door, I ran to my old room, and inside the closet I wrote down in a dark corner with a thick black sharpie, We were here. If they painted over it, I wouldn't care. The words would still be there underneath the paint, even if no one else could see them. She reduced everything she owned to four suitcases. That's all she could take on the plane. In them was the inventory of our madness. We spent hours, days, helping her decide what she truly needed, which was a difficult question to ask. In 1993... When we came to the U.S. by foot, with nothing but the clothes on our back, she would leave. Oh, uh, she would leave through the air with a little more than that. What did she have to show for all of it in the end? Mis hijos, she said, by which she meant that we, her children, grown, bearded, our own hair beginning to gray, were what she, were what she had to show for it all. It was our bodies, the fact that we were breathing, alive, that we were beautiful in whatever kind of sun. It was the fact that she was alive, that she had made it. We drove to my house where she would stay for the last three weeks. I thought about my body, how it took up the space around it, how it was here. We had always been here. But it wasn't enough. Prove her presence. 
I went to the bathroom and touched the tattoos on my body and rubbed the piercing on my nose. It was a screw stud, amethyst. Amma hated my tattoos and piercings. I grabbed the nose ring and tore it off. If I could, I would have torn off my tattoos. Prove her presence. The blood in the sink was pink, then red, then pink again, then gone. Yeah, I don't think there's um, any much context uh, for this next one. It's, um, you know, uh, I read this recently the other day in in San Francisco and this part for the first time. And uh, my brother was in the audience and uh, it made what I wrote in here uh, feel all the more true. And it felt like it wasn't just in my head. And you'll see what I mean uh, when I read it. But um, we had never really talked about it, even since, you know. Um, my mom since was able to return. Um, I won't give it, you know, uh, I don't want to spoil it. But um, she is here in the U.S. now um, under asylum proceedings. Um but even then, since then, we still haven't been able to talk about it, to process it. And it's difficult between families. When I interviewed my family for the book, for stories, for their narratives, for their testimonials, um, I had to find a new way to, to, a new vocabulary to talk with my family that I didn't have before. A new way of talking to them that I didn't have before because we continually tried to, I guess, subconsciously... Uh, control what others knew about us and we continue to do this i at least continue to do this um throughout my life even from when i was very little um even up to, until the present day because that was possibly dangerous information and it was very very uh taxing to be a child and have to uh, have so many things running through your head as you make the decision, simple decisions as should I speak Spanish in this context or not? What are my points of references going to be? So on and so forth. It was the day of her departure and still no one said the words we were all thinking. What exactly those words were, I wasn't sure. But they were on the tips of all our tongues we could see them on each other, even if we couldn't see them on ourselves. Let me do your hair, said Amma's only daughter. And Amma sat on a small ottoman in front of her, cradled between her thighs. She brushed her hair and curled it. She took her time to make sure Amma looked pretty and would stop now and again to pick it up and let it slowly fall on her shoulders. Each brushstroke was steady and with purpose. No energy wasted, unlike me. 
Without intending it, we all sat around them in a circle and stared, as if we were staring at a campfire, mesmerized by the light and the heat that would burn us if we came too close. It was their moment, and their moment only. There you go. See how pretty you look? She said to Ama. Still, no one said anything. We sat in my living room, unsure of what to say because no one wanted to initiate any forward movement. Finally, someone said, Okay, and patted their palms on their lap quickly, which meant that it was time. That was the first time any of us admitted it. It was the first time we confirmed to each other that indeed it was happening, that it wasn't just something in our heads, even though we could see it all happening in front of us as we cleared her house, as we packed her suitcases, as we posed for a picture. It brought to the surface our collective grief, which we had all kept quietly inside because we knew if one of us broke, we would all break. We did it for each other. The puzzle in our mouths spilled out. But it wasn't words. It was sound. No one was hiding anymore. It was as if in the months leading up to that moment, we had been lost in a labyrinth. And we could hear each other, but we couldn't see each other. We knew we were there from our voices, but we couldn't be sure. And suddenly, the walls lowered. We could see each other finally. And we could see that each of us was weeping. We had always been weeping. But it was easy to hide it when walking alone through the maze, saying to each other, I'm okay. I'm okay. But it was then that we all saw each other for the first time. We saw how small and wrinkled we had become. We saw how much we had changed because we rarely encountered this side of ourselves. I couldn't remember the last time I saw my brother weep, but I realized that his grief left his body differently than before. He had changed. We had all changed. We greeted each other in our despair and held our faces. Brother, how much you've changed since we last cried together. We loaded the luggage and took separate cars to the airport. We drove slowly. We appreciated every red light, every stop, every tractor trailer that merged in front of us. For once, how great it would have been to be pulled over. For the cop to lean into our windows and ask for license and registration. What would happen if you missed her flight? Would that give us enough courage to state the obvious? That despite her departure seeming inevitable, there was nothing wrong with staying. We'd booked the latest red eye we could find so that we could sleep on the plane and not have to see the world as it happened. We arrived at the airport and parked all of our cars near each other. Everyone took a bag, or a suitcase, or held one another. Either way, everyone was carrying something, 
Everyone had a hand in the decision, as if each of us was carrying something of hers. We knew if one of us broke again and said, no, don't go, that the rest would probably follow. And if the rest followed, Amma would see our pain and stay, but no one budged. Was it pride? We all swallowed that thick crow and kept moving toward the entrance, looking at each other, hoping the others, even one of the grandchildren, would break. It was still early, so we waited at some tables. Still, we kept looking at each other to see if anyone would speak out against her decision, but no one did. We stayed until we could stay no longer. Finally, we broke but in the wrong direction. Our seams tore through the paths we had never experienced. We hugged. We didn't know if this would be the last time we would all be together like this. Certainly, it would be the last time we all looked the way we did together. Still young, Ama was standing. We were all still standing. None of us had bent from the weight of it all. We were strong. At least four generations had prepared us for moments like these. We couldn't take all the luggage through the escalator, so we walked over to the elevator to take us to the next floor. I pressed the call button. I pressed the button to call the elevator down, and a small red light lit up. The doors opened, and I took my mother inside, holding her by her arm. She didn't turn around to watch the doors close with everyone else stuck on the other side. The doors closed. It was as if someone had suddenly turned on gravity, as if that entire time we were actually floating in midair, unknowingly. Her body bent in half when the door shut and she screamed. I had never heard my mother make those sounds. I didn't know she was capable of them. It was more of a wail than a scream. Sustained. It was a wail in which all of the words were the same, even though they weren't. It sounded like she was saying the same thing over and over. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. What she actually said was, This is stronger than me. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. This is stronger than me. I don't know if she ever got back up. Not completely, at least. The whole way through the airport, it felt like she was still crouched over. Both of us were a little closer to the earth, even though in about an hour we would be a few miles above it. Just before going through security, I turned to Amma and said, Amma, it's not too late to turn around. Are you sure? But I knew it was too late. From that moment, from, from that moment, the distance started growing. From that moment forward, her children would live mostly in her memory. We passed through TSA as if we were floating downstream in a river. There was nothing in our way to snag us, nothing to stop us. The agent waved us on. 
She raised her medal in her arm, and the x-ray machines waved us on. The drug dogs waved us on. Even the walls, if they had hands, would have waved us on. That's how easy it was to return. So I couldn't, I, I could never write about, I guess, more immediate, something that was more, the immediacy of what was happening in my life around me was a lot more difficult than poetry. Uh, and so I reverted to a more uh, surreal, abstract, imagistic form of poetry that allowed me to work in a manner uh, or that allowed me permission to maneuver easier, uh, a lot easier, um, and allowed me to kind of circumvent the rigidness that I had built within myself um, from years and years and years of of living in fear, living, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, living with the with the effects of all of these events. Um, which led me to lose a lot of my memory of my childhood. I didn't know. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the poems operate kind of like on one plane, and um, the, the poetry finally was able to do that. And now that it's out, you know, this book sucked to write. I didn't enjoy it. Um, it was one of the most difficult things that I had done in my life. Um, and during that time, I had, you know, um, one or two breakdowns. It was just very terrible. But, um, you know, I guess I wanted to not... I, I felt like I didn't have the luxury to be misinterpreted anymore. And again, I admire those poets who, um, who are able to convey exactly what they want. Um, and for me, I still felt I couldn't fully say everything. So I'm just going to read um, two poems. The last one is super short. It's called Wet Back. After the first boy called me a wet back, I opened his mouth and fed him a spoonful of honey. I like the way you say honey, he said. I made him a necklace out of the bees that have died in my yard. How good it must have felt before the small village echoed its grief in his throat, before the sirens began ringing. How fallow their scripture. Perhaps we were on stage, which meant it was a show, which meant our only definition of a flower was also a flower. I waved to the crowd like they taught me, like a mini miss something. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, I could have ripped open his throat. I could have blown him a kiss from the curtain. I wanted to dance by myself in a dark room filled with the wingless bodies of bees. 
to make of this our own Old Testament, with all the same beheaded kings pointing at all the same beheaded prophets, the same Christ running through every door like a man who forgot his child in his car. But the lights were too bright. I couldn't hear him because I wasn't on stage. I could have been anyone's idea of pity. How quiet are prophets. Let my bare back remind him of every river he swam in. Miel and miel. I pulled the bees off the string and cupped them in my palm. I told him my Spanish name. There was nothing dry on my body. The lamps falling over in the dark of me. And well, thank you. And so I think, yeah, um, this is the last poem uh, that I'll be reading. Again, thank you so much. Thank you, my heart and love goes out to Kazum um, for bringing me here, um, for everybody here. Lily, same. Um, these are uh, instructions. When I was growing up uh, and reading, and I always, uh, geraniums had always been romanticized in like, you know, the Western canon. <laughs> and I had always like wondered like, oh, well, uh, what, 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 wouldn't it be so cool to like grow a geranium? And <laughs> not knowing that my whole life I had geraniums in my backyard. <laughs> they were called malvas. And that's what my mom had. Malvas, we had malvas, you know, uh, my entire life. Um, so it was a good surprise. This is how to grow the brightest geranium. I am not ashamed, the story goes. I swear I will learn to leave a room without touching every part of your face. Thank you. So, I think we have time for some questions. If uh, anybody would like to ask, there's a mic going around so that it can be picked up on these recording devices. Uh, thank you very much for your reading. Thank you. I was going to say it was beautiful, but it's actually very profound. Uh, I, I have a question that's kind of important because, like, the introduction said you're a mockingbird, and I immediately jumped to that metaphor, it was interesting. And my question is very pertinent in, in, in relationship to this university, which is essentially a co college of science and technology. Uh -huh. Poetry is literature and arts, it's a supportive thing. It's important for people to know that language is very important, but we think of linguistics as somehow the keeper of the language, because it's the gatekeeper and the the watcher. But in, in fact, poetry is the vortex from which language springs forth to give meaning to existence. And this is exactly what your writing does. And it's important for 
people to understand that that's a very important part of existence and that that part of existence kind of pure functional language does not touch and you've done a wonderful job perhaps you could comment on Oh, I'm. Yeah, no, I mean, I'll just say thank you. That's very well put. I could have, I could have put it better myself, um, of the functions of poetry. So I guess I think what uh, you were saying is everybody should just read more poetry. Yeah. Um, any other questions? Yeah. Oh, right here, and then, and then right down here. Oh, thank you. <laughs> your, your ability to, you know, take these, uh, you know, points from your life and experiences and really express them and put them out in the process. How, how do you go about, um, because, you know, some of these things are involved a lot of emotional distress and stuff. How do you go about thinking, thinking them through and properly conveying them to um, he asked, how do you go about and properly convey uh, emotionally difficult things in your life? Um, for those of you who uh, uh, didn't catch that, um, you get a therapist, first and <laughs> foremost. Um, you get a therapist and you clean your room and um, <laughs> do your laundry. Um, I, I had to set, I'm, uh, um, I had to set a very specific pattern for myself and follow a, a, a ritual almost, uh, every day, every day and set the, set, uh, set myself to those, like those circadian rhythms. Uh, and otherwise I was just going to lose my mind, um, you know, and done more damage than than what had already been done because I I actually didn't get a therapist until after the book was finished because I was like fuck. <laughs> um, so uh, I had to first make sure that uh, the all the loose ends in my life were tied, and that's not saying that I actually uh, followed <laughs> through with that many times because. It was a very difficult process, and I didn't adhere to that, you know, a lot. But that's that was always a goal of mine to make sure that if on the page it's going to be it's going to be pretty messy, then then my life should uh, kind of counteract that. Um, it's a myth that like um, I I feel like it's a myth that of like the the '60s where you know you needed like um, psychedelics in order to like tap into like another uh, create form of creativity or anything like that. But I produced the best when I started to revise it in a much more uh, uh, stable state of mind. I was uh, properly heavily medicated then um, uh, in the right ways and uh, started seeing a therapist. So that's kind of what what helped the revision process put it into its final form because it was something very, very different. It was something very different that I pitched when I pitched it to the publisher. And, it, um, you know, the, the, this isn't the book that I promised I would give them. Um, but they were they were happy with the result. Yeah, thanks for that question. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I have a maybe more formal question, which is making the jump from poetry to nonfiction prose. You said there are some things that you couldn't say in poetry, which I completely understand. 
Do you feel like the the logic of poetry, sort of that way that it's associative, or maybe not as typically cause and effect as some prose is? Did you feel that that impacted your writing? And would you mind commenting on that? Yeah, um, yeah. So for her, her question was just about the formalistic aspect of like structure and an associative tendency that that poetry um, tends to like gear, uh, tends to adhere to, or some poems, certainly my poems. Um, and if that was a uh, had any effect on the prose, and yeah, I don't think I could have imagined a different way of putting together the various narratives and. Uh, and narrative arcs that and chronologies that um, that happen throughout the book without first uh, understanding that I wasn't wed to that exposit, uh, expository writing, uh, scenic writing, and chrono more chronological um, uh, cause and effect, as you say, and traditional growth of the person and the obstacles that they have to get through to. Achieve, uh, to overcome that growth and then they're somehow different at the end, right? The formulas. Um, so I very much uh, wrote very long essays. Like one of the essays takes up an entire quarter of the book, but I couldn't maintain that attention for that long. I could because it was my essay and I knew what was, what was going on there, but um, I was very worried, you know, what would happen to the reader. So... Um, Really, the whole thing is written, and it, it, if you were to just flip through it, it would look like little sections um, per page, but in, re in reality, it's one giant essay. Um, and I was able to move things around, really play with it. I carried cards, flashcards with me, and would just like shuffle them um, in my pocket, and, and then just try to find interesting ways of pairing different events in my life that I wouldn't have... I wouldn't have on my own thought of that had any relation to each other or that would have uh, uh, um, had any consequences for that, um, either in my life or some of the events that I talk about in the book about my parents' life, my grandfather's life, uh, my great-great-grandparents' life, um, so on and so forth. So, yeah, that, that associative kind of um, function that non sequitur almost kind of function really um, gave me the freedom to play with it a lot more. Thank you. Yeah. Maybe time for one more? Yeah. Um, just to, now that you talked about so much, you said many times that you felt you couldn't say in poetry what you needed to say in this prose book. Now that you've completed this book, it's out. I think so. I mean, I have the next um, project that I in mind, and I have like some of the ideas that I think I want to start talking about. Um, uh, and I and I think I have a direction in which I want to take the subject matter. And it's a lot more research intensive project than anything I've ever done before. Yes, there was research for this, but not on like on like archival work. So. Um, I I feel like the vehicle will present itself rather than me trying to impose like this is going to be a book of poems and then try to write poems um, and then realize like two years from now after I have written a book of poems on it that I have to now change it into a novel. Um, 
So um, I'm really going to allow myself the openness to um, uh, work through it and let it really tell me what what, what it wants to do. Um, and so right now it's just uh, an assortion of like notes, bullet points, notes, um, uh, articles, stuff like that. Yeah, very um, uh, pastiche kind of like things everywhere. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, there's no more. Right, we, okay, we, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I've 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 pretty much uh, stopped engaging with that conversation um, because I don't want my 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 work in my book to to be uh, only approached through via that via that book and then come to mind from that. You know, I want my book to stand on its own rather than being you know um, pitted um, like that. So. That's that's pretty much it. Yeah. Thank you all so much. Okay, everyone. Um, books are for sale. Oh, am I here? Books are for sale outside, so you can pick up a copy, and Marcelo maybe will sign it for you. And we're also new writing series is back on February the twenty sixth with the Russian poet and critic. Dmitry Kuzmin, and then on March 11th, the last um, Wednesday before spring break, we're going to have our faculty, UCSD faculty member Anna Joy Springer and uh, Francesco Lovato. So please come back. Some of you have to come back, but <laughs> those of you who don't have to come back should come back by choice. Um, you can do it.